He wanted to solve the case before he retired. The stunning conclusion to a decades-long hunt for the Golden State Killer is something you'll want to hear straight from Paul Holes of the Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office. Lisa Amin Galician with ABC7 in San Francisco spoke with the newly retired cold case investigator about his search for the Golden State Killer. And now we present the full, uncut version of that interview. Yeah, it was amazing because we were listening in the war room about the, the arrest operation going down and everybody's silent. And then over the radio, it comes suspect in custody. And it was just everybody up out of the chairs, they're hooting and hollering because so much time and effort has gone into this case to finally get this guy who everybody has been looking for for so long into custody uh, was a great feeling. Why was this case so important to you? I mean, you dedicated a lot of your professional life to this. You know, there's there's several reasons. Initially, when I found out about the case, it, it was an interest because I was interested in cold cases, interested in serial predator work. But as I read the case files and saw the, the atrocities that he was committing to these victims, I started to think, this guy has to be caught. And then when I got to a point where I was talking to victims, and I saw the devastation that they were feeling today. And these are, these are the living victims, let alone the, the family members of the homicide victims. You see that trauma and then you feel obligated that you have to keep charging forward. And so it then became, I don't have a choice. You know, I gotta do this. This came, was maybe a hobby at the beginning. Well, let's see, this looks like an interesting case to try to solve, to know this needs to be solved. Was it more, was it a little bit of an obsession, especially you're parked there the day before your retirement? Uh, to a fault. Why? Because I, I neglected maybe certain areas of my life in order to be able to continue to pursue this case. Tell me what happened the day before your retirement. So the day before my retirement um, was uh, continuing the investigation into Joe D'Angelo and he had become interesting to me to a point where I, I felt I needed to go see where he lived. So I left Martinez, I drove up to Citrus Heights, and I literally parked across the street on the curb, looking at his house, just kind of taking in the neighborhood. But at this point, no idea that he was actually the Golden State Killer. And I sat there and I debated going, how I've been through this so many times before, what's the likelihood that this is the guy? And I even considered, you know, I should just knock on his door. I'm here. I drove all this way. Just talk to him, get a quick interview, ask if he would give a consent DNA sample and say, thank you very much, sir, and, you know, leave. And I said, I just don't know a, a, enough about him. And that's when I decided I, I got to drive away and we need to, you know, find out more. And in retrospect, now knowing who he was, I'm glad I did. I mean, it's bittersweet. I wanted to solve this case before I retired. Um, I potentially could have, but it also could have resulted in some violent actions going on. And, and uh, fortunately, you know, I was alone. It could have been a very bad situation. So in hindsight, it was very good that I made that decision to drive away. Knowing, the, you're pretty much, you know, an expert on D'Angelo at this point. I think we can all understand that. To a point, but, you know, we, researched him with what we could find to the point where he became an interesting person but there is so much we don't know about him i'm an expert in the case i know now that i put a face and a name to it i know what he did but i don't know a lot about it and that investigation is 
Now the investigators are going to have to go out and talk to all the people over time that have known this guy and find out more about him to help understand how he was able to commit these crimes, especially being a full-time law enforcement officer up in Auburn of all places and coming down and attacking all over Northern California. I don't know how he did that. And tell me, tell, in the most basic way possible, how you did the genealogy part. Explain it to me in the most simple terms as you can. Sure. So you, he left his DNA all over the place. You know, the Golden State Killer left his DNA. So we had a sample that we were able to generate a DNA profile. We uploaded into a, a, an open source uh, database of uh, other similar types of, of profiles. And then from there, we get uh, a match list of how much DNA these various other individuals share with the crime scene DNA. And the more DNA that they share, the more closely related they are. Now I'm talking, you know, third, fourth, fifth cousins. These very distantly related. But it gives us a starting point. And that's where sort of the genealogy kicks in, where now you have to develop, track back these people's uh, family lineages and hope to find a common ancestor. From there, you start figuring out, well, who all is descended from those common ancestors? And we're talking great, great, great grandparent type of descendants. So there are hundreds of people that you have to figure out who is all underneath, you know, these, these patriarchs and matriarchs. And from there, then we start kicking into the classic crime analytics and investigative mode, where we have to assess individuals that are of the right age, the right um, physical size, because we knew the size of our offender, 5'8", 5'10", 180 pounds. So if we see somebody who's 6'4", well, he's obviously not our guy. And then geography, you know, are, is this person living in the right areas, or at least some of the areas, to make him a, a little bit interesting? And then we start looking, can we eliminate them? Maybe they've been arrested before, they've been in custody during some of the attacks, can move away. And then you start narrowing down the pool of people, and then eventually you get a small enough pool where you go, okay, now we have to kind of do a little more concerted effort on each one. And if the person has enough of the boxes checked, that's when you go and decide, I'm going to get a direct DNA sample and do the traditional forensic DNA testing to see, is this person the Golden State Killer? And that's when you go and actually pay them a visit. You pay them a visit. You can ask for a consent sample. You could write uh, a warrant and be able to, to f compel to get a sample, or you can follow them around and get what we call a surreptitious sample. When they discard their DNA in a public place, we can lawfully grab that, test it, and if it matches, now you have problem cause. And that's what you did with D'Angelo? That is what Sher Sac Sheriff's Office did, is they got a surreptitious sample and it came back and showed that he was a Golden State Killer. It was 100% matched with one of the semen samples? It was an absolute match, and it's conclusive. And did the DNA or the genealogy stuff take you literally from the East Coast to the Central Valley? In terms of people that were within his lineage, absolutely. But then fundamentally, you start looking for people who have the geographic connections. Uh, and when they have the geographic connections, those are the ones that become, okay, we've got somebody who's actually in California. Are they in Sacramento? Are they in the East Bay? Are they down in Southern California at the right times? And sometimes we can figure that, that out relatively easily, and sometimes you can't. Are you sure you have the right man? 
100%. There is no question. This DNA testing that was done, which is your traditional forensic DNA test, the, the statistics are so astronomical, it is unique. This is the Golden State Killer. D'Angelo is the Golden State Killer. And when you think about the fact that he spent the majority of his life terrorizing people, and now he's an old man, what's left of his life to really be punished? Is that frustrating for you? I think the frustration is how long it took us, me, everybody involved in the case to find him. And that was even something apparent as I was hunting him. I recognized that he's probably just living a normal life. And the, every day that went by, you know, he's getting away with it. And that was a life he didn't deserve. And so that was very frustrating. This case, I thought I would be able to solve this case much faster. And I did not solve this case. You know, this was a team, team effort. FBI helped me out tremendously with the process. Sacramento DA's office helped me out tremendously with the process. I could not have done this without those people being part of this team. Um, but it should have happened earlier. And, and that's, it's been very humbling, you know. I took a step back going, okay, this, this was a tough, tough case to be able to work on. And it's very satisfying to be at this point and having this guy in custody. Do you have any idea, when do you think he stopped and well, why? So the last known case that we have is May 5th, 1986, out of Irvine when he bludgeons Janelle Cruz, 19-year-old Janelle Cruz, to, to death in her bed. We don't have any other case after that. Now, that was after five years of nothing. So he killed Gregory Sanchez and Sherry Domingo in July of 81, and then for five years we have nothing until he pops up and, and kills Janelle Cruz. He gets into a physical fight with Gregory Sanchez in that 1981 case, and I believe he got hurt or he got scared, and he walked away from that crime scene thinking, I could have been killed in that. I don't want that to happen. And I think it's possible that he did not commit any more crimes until he somehow ran across beautiful Janelle Cruz. And maybe there's some stressors going on in his life at the same time, and he couldn't help himself. And he goes and kills her, and then maybe backs off. And the other thing to point out is he's an older guy. You know, many people thought this guy, when he started in Sacramento in 1976, was roughly 18 to 20 years old. No, in 1976, he's 31. So when he's killing Janelle Cruz, he's 41. And this is where you start to see, with these, these predators, you start to see a drop-off in terms of their compulsions to continue. It starts to go off. So I think that his age, coupled with his self-preservation, his desire not to get caught, uh, that probably was the overwhelming factor. And I do think it's likely he stopped, but it is possible out there after Janelle Cruz that we haven't identified yet. And I know that, and it's also super frustrating for anybody that all those rapes, 50 some odd rapes, cannot be prosecuted because of the time limit. Wasn't right. there one in the 90s? Wasn't the Walnut Creek one with a 13 year old in the night? No? So all the attacks in Northern California attributed to the East Area Rapist. Uh, that was from June 1976 until July 1979. All 50 of those attacks occurred during those two dates, that three-year span. He has over 100 burglaries attributed to him as a Visalia ransacker. 
uh, including the homicide of Claude Snelling. Now, the homicide can be prosecuted. The burglaries are way past statute of limitation. Unfortunately, the way the law was written in the penal code for sexual assaults back in the 70s, it was weak in terms of the punishment. And so once those cases passed statute of limitation, many of the agency's property rooms destroyed all the evidence. So fortunately in Contra Costa County, we had three sex kits that we were able to test and show, oh, the East Area Rapist is the original Night Stalker, but all these other cases were absolutely confident are done by the same guy because the MO was so distinctive. Wow. So you still had, so you even knowing that you were on these cases, you knew that you weren't going to be able to bring justice to the living victims. Absolutely. You know, and I, you know, in talking to these victims, you know, I ended up talking to a handful of them yesterday to basically talk to them about finding D'Angelo and, and get a sense for how they were feeling. And they have such a, a flood of relief and just overwhelming emotions of joy that this guy is in custody, that even though I know they're disappointed that their case isn't going to be what is going to be part of the prosecution, um, the, the knowledge that this guy isn't still out there hurting anybody or possibly coming back after them, that is something that they were, a day they were looking forward to forever. Let's talk about Bonnie. Well, in the third Davis attack, while the, uh, the East Area Rapist was, was raping a victim, he is sobbing and making the statement, I hate you, Bonnie, I hate you, Bonnie, over and over again. So we always thought that uh, the offender had a female in his life. Don't know, was it mom? Was it wife? Was it ex-girlfriend? Don't know. But we always thought he had somebody named Bonnie that was significant to him and possibly some sort of negative relationship. And so when we ran across suspects that had a Bonnie in their background, they notched up a little bit in terms of interest. But I will tell you that investigating so many of these guys of that generation, Bonnie was a common name. And so I thought, ooh, that's a very, you know, that's something I might be able to key in on. A lot of these guys had Bonnies in, in their past, so it was tough to really use that as a, a true criteria. So even now, do you feel like his ex-fiance being Bonnie, do you feel like that's significant in, again, you know, wrapping this whole thing up, or is it just like another disfactor into his crazy? I, I believe that, you know, there is going to be some psychological contribution of that aspect to what feels internally but i have no idea i have no knowledge of that relationship at this point in time and he went on to get married he has three daughters his grandkids right like he's a grandpa to somebody he that that's kind of what is the frustrating thing is he was able to live a normal life and blend in in plain sight. And you talk about his family, and, and that's another tragedy right right there. You know, these, these poor girls, you know, now finding this out about their father, you know, and, and Sacramento is doing everything, everything they can to help support them. And he had three daughters? Yes. No sons? I'm not aware of a son. That's, I mean, that just adds to the disturbing level of his Maniac, right, in terms of when you when you take a look at the types of crimes he was committing and then 
to, to have, you know, children uh, that basically replicated who his victims were. Are you going to stick around for the rest of this? What are you going to do? No, well, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to do at this point. I always had this vision that if I solved it, you know, I basically would, what I say, gift wrap this guy and pass him on to the agencies that could prosecute. And I think that's probably what's going to happen, and I'll, I'll be available in an advisory capacity from this point on. I am fully retired. I was fully retired three weeks ago. So it just so happened that we found him after I retired, and of course, I want to be part of that and contribute to uh, getting him in custody and making sure that everything was uh, done as well as it possibly could so be. So you were there for when he was taken in? I was, I was at Sack Sheriff's office when the arrest was made, but because of the... Oh yeah, you the, were in the war room. I was in the war room. This is a dangerous man. And so they had, you know, a, a special team with special tactics to take him into custody, and they did an awesome job. They prevented any harm to officers or to other citizens. Mm -hmm. They did not harm him, and he was taken into custody without incident. And it could have gone very differently if uh, he had a chance to basically play out what I'm sure he had planned was an end game if he was confronted by law enforcement. Have you talked to him? Have you seen him in person? I have seen him, but I have not talked to him. What did you think when you saw him face to face, this guy that you've been hunting, your words, for 10 years? In looking at him, you he, his persona just kind of had a eerie, aspect to it and for me it was surreal finally putting a face to this just name on a piece of paper and all the case files and to actually see him and actually see him contort his face into anger or into pretend crying which we know our offender did now i'm saying that is i can now see that when i'm reading these case files so you needed to see him. You needed to see him. I absolutely needed to see him. And, and, and to see him sit in the interview room utterly defeated, that was a very good feeling.